I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer program reality. Welcome everyone to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the Metaverse. Your quarter episodes live at Allspace every week, and you can join us from your PC or VR headset, log into Allspace, join our Simulation Nation channel, and teleport in to offer your opinion, question, or whatever else. Today we're going back to 1999 to take a look at The Truman Show, is about a man who grew up thinking he was living an ordinary life only to discover everything was a lie and his world was nothing more than a giant television set. Many people have seen the movie starring Jim Carrey, but not many people know that it may have been an unofficial adaptation of the Philip K. Dick novel, I'm Out of Joint from 1959. Here to talk about all the similarities, the differences, if the movie holds up, and everything about Philip K. D., Philip K. Dick, that is, aficionado, Dickheads podcast co-host here, Anthony Trevito, uh, who is, um, I guess, called Palmer Eldritch in the metaverse. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for uh, Anthony Palmer, whatever he wants to be called. This is your first time in the metaverse, so let's give him a nice, warm metaverse welcome. <laughs> thank, thank you, Neo Retro. Yeah. How's it going back there? Maple Fish and Cornelius, everyone's here. Um, so, 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 what should I call you? Should I call you Palmer or should I call you Anthony? Anthony's fine. Anthony's fine. Okay. Well, one thing that I love more than the fact that you're named Palmer Eldritch in the metaverse is that no one had taken that name already. So maybe you I'm could describe that it hadn't. Yeah. So could you tell us why you chose the name Palmer Eldritch? Well, mostly because it's my favorite PKD novel, which is the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. And I just love the idea of Palmer Eldritch being this cosmic kind of weird alien cosmic horror being it's it's honestly that's dick's most cosmic horror novel in my opinion so it's right. my favorite one and it felt very fitting for alt space yeah i remember so we uh for anyone who is wondering um you know about uh the three stigmata of palmer eldritch we did an episode with you and your co-host on the dickheads podcast uh called the prophet of the metaverse author philip k dick with you guys and you guys broke down philip k dick's entire career gave a lot of perspective as to why we consider him this sort of odd father of the better who, who came up with all of these uh alternate reality ideas related reality ideas and was the one in 1977 to publicly state that he believed we were living in a computer simulation so all that stuff is covered with you guys and we had such a great episode we love that episode and a lot of our uh nationites our simulation nation followers love that episode as well so we're so glad to have you back on this stage uh for the first time last time we no, did it on I'm... zoom this time you're on the stage i don't think i can ever go back to zoom now this is way too cool <laughs> exactly yeah so i'll put a in the show notes i'll put a, a link to our episode and then we also did another episode on virtuosity starring denzel washington that was super fun as well i'm really glad to have you in here so that you can get the full-on experience and i know that from beyond the grave or from the simulation or wherever philip k dick is he is proud of you palmer oh thank you i hope he is <laughs> i think so well we'll see what you say about time after uh, time out of joy before we uh exactly uh what he would say but let's let's go into overall thoughts just to kick things off um so let's just start first of all with the truman show uh we rewatched the movie um what are your overall thoughts of the movie i think rewatching it i found it more 
dick well i guess i should talk about how i feel if it relates to pkd right off the bat but it's been a while since i've seen it i saw it in theaters when it came out so i was probably like 12 um and i haven't seen it since but i think I, i understood a lot more of how meta and strange it is than i probably would have as a 12 year old i think it's a i think it's a solid movie i wish it were a little stranger but overall, I overall I think it it does a great job with what it's trying to do and kind of its its commentary on you know, reality television. Um, okay, so first of all, I should say that I'm a huge Peter Weir fan who directed this movie. He's an Australian filmmaker. I've loved him ever since Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is sort of an obscure artsy Criteria Collection type movie about um, some kids who went missing in um, Australia. I think in the seventies. Um, and then he came to America. He did uh, the movie Witness, which is incredible. My all-time favorite movie of his, and my all-time favorite Robert Williams movie, Robin Williams movie, Dead Poet Society. Uh, oh, Captain, My Captain, incredible movie. And then he did these big-budget movies called, Ma- you know, Master and Commander and such like that. So he's—I always think he's an incredible filmmaker. Um, and so this is one of his movies. And so you know you're in for a treat. You know you're in for an intelligent story, intelligently told. I think that that is uh, no different here. Um, so, you know, I think it's like premise on the surface looks like this very innocuous, innocent type movie, but it's actually a little bit deeper than that. And the thing that struck me more this time than I think anything from before is how sinister it is. This is a really messed up sister movie where on the surface, everyone is happy and putting on a smile, but then you realize, wait a bit, it like, this woman who is uh, his pretending to be his wife is uh, acting and she's sleeping with him and she's going to have his baby for the for her role. And, you know, his friend is lying through his teeth at these most uh, intimate moments. Uh, they stage his dad's death. Audience who's watching the show knows he's basically an indentured slave. Uh, he was born into captivity and he's brought up in this fake environment. And they know this about it, but everyone loves it. And it's really like twisted and sinister. It's I, I love that on the surface, everything is like cheery and happy. And underneath is like this dark underbelly of insanity. We will save our thoughts maybe till the end of the plot. Let's let's talk about the plot a little bit. And then we'll talk about the similarities and differences with time out of joint. And then we'll sort of try to would have thought to is this actually a ripoff is it an unofficial adaptation or does it have is it a total coincidence that two stories uh that have some similarities came out uh it, it came out you know 40 years apart so there is uh, quite a bit of difference so do you want to start off by giving uh the plot of the truman show and then i'll try to dive into time at a joint basically i'm going to try to keep it as lean as i can oh but he just uh like a horn emoji or like a, you've got five minutes left emoji in alt space that says hurry it up. Um, no, you could take as much time as you want. So as, as we both kind of said, Truman is living in this fabricated reality. This, essentially he lives on a giant backlog. So he's picked from birth from, I think, believe it was an unwanted pregnancy. They, they took the baby to basically raise from birth now. And they've been, videoing his entire life then to where we find him now and i think i think it's when he's supposed to be 30 and when this the movie kind of comes around and everybody outside of 
know the show has been watching it. I don't, one of the things I couldn't really figure out and I might have missed it is that do the people that are living in this town, like the extras and the people who freeze in the middle of the street, do they just go home at the end of the day or are they all also living in that town? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I imagine that they go home because when when we when he tries to go to the wrong elevator and he sees like the craft service table where people are drinking coffee, it feels like oh they would like punch in and punch out at the end of the day because it's like when he doesn't appear and Truman isn't in a spot, I think that no one's there, right? Like just sort of like oh somewhere else. And then when he's there, they just do a loop around him of the same activities over and over. But that's a really good question. I don't know. What did you think? Did you think that they uh, went home at the end of the day or slept there? Uh, I think they probably punch in and punch out. And I think, theoretically, they probably cycle through their extras, would be my guess. Like, let's say that Kristoff has the same players that play the very, like, very specific roles, but then everybody else that's essentially treated as set dressing is probably just a non-stop cycle of extras for the day, for the week, for how, you know, however often is needed. In order to keep Truman kind of secluded and I guess you'd call it like dissuade him from trying to venture out is director Christoph played by Ed Harris, right? Great Ed Harris. Mm -hmm. Basically kind of fabricates all of these roadblocks. Right? So he makes him afraid of the ocean because that's how his dad died and so on and so forth. But when we meet Truman, the movie at, at that at the you know the age of 30 he start seem like there's cracks in the in the set you know like the rain is hitting the wrong spot certain things seem weird to him as as he goes along and so that's how he kind of starts to question the nature of the reality that he lives in hey what do you think graham was the pivot point for human's character where he really does start to figure out something's missing like something's wrong the reality he's in right that's a good question um the pivot point i mean there's so many cues along the way i think at the end of act one is where he sets out on a mission to figure out what the heck is going on in this world and then i think at the midpoint he's like convinced that they are in some kind of a simulated reality because i he, he, the, the mission sets off because he ha he has this vision of this girl that he met uh, when he was in college or or maybe before that, and he just he had this sort of crush on her and and she was trying to tell him uh, it's all a lie. Don't listen to anyone. And she got carried away by a bunch of sort of security guards. and And ever since then, he's been obsessed with her. So then you know, he kind of um he kind of is on a search for her, and he notices things along the way, but he it's it's not until the midpoint, I think, where he's really like, okay, this is like a lie. And I, and I think it's the moment that he's with his wife in the car, his, his fake wife, and he sees the, the loop of people in the background. And they, he's like, okay, it's going to be a, a person on a bike, that a, a person in a red sweater, and then a blue car is going to go by in that order. And he figures out that there's a loop around him. I feel like that's like the moment where he's like decided, I'm going to run away. I'm going to go to the edge of this place and see where the boundary is. I don't know. What do you think? Kind of I think I think that's when it starts, and then I think it only gets deeper for him when he sees the homeless man that's his dad. Right, right. And of he course. tries to follow that that thread, and you know, watching all of this unfold from like the big, dare I say, high castle, 
Kristoff is in. Right. And uh, so he starts creating these additional roadblocks, like when everybody starts walking at the same time. Um, uh, there was one really good one, and now I now I don't remember. Every time he steps out of line, he they send his friend, his supposed best friend, oh, show up brutal. with beer. No, it's it's manipulating everybody that's supposed to be close to you keep you in line. It's the saddest thing ever. Eventually, yeah, it's totally brutal. We do in the end. Are we a uh, spoiler free? I can never remember. Oh yeah, no, you could spoil away. Uh, I don't think that a a Mitsutrod or Icky or Hero would mind. Mikey, how's it going, Mikey? Nice top hat. Um, yeah, no, you could spoil. The rule is, if it's been over ten years, uh, too bad. Okay, so eventually Truman does hit the water and try to sail as far as he can. Right, right, right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So instead of the movie ending where he he reaches the exit door, he pushes the exit door open, and for the first time in his life, he's going out into the real world. Wish that we saw a little bit more of him out there and how he acclimatized. Well, great sequel. Maybe you should write it. The Truman Show too. Truman Show too. But <laughs> honestly, from a from from a writer's standpoint, the ending that they went with is the stronger ending. Yeah. Well. The, the the reason that I love the editing, and I see that um, maybe somebody oh they're gone now so I had a question. The reason that I love that ending is because it makes the movie for me allegorical, makes it about the journey of self discovery and the journey to question everything in your life and figure out what is truth. And then it's like beyond that, well, it's up to your imagination. It's kind of like the end of the Close Encounters of the Third Kind when he steps into the spaceship and they reshot a bunch of stuff where it was like showing the inside of the spaceship but then everyone in the audience was like, actually though we prefer just to have him walk into the white light and just imagine what's beyond i think that that's the same thing with this i feel like if you had gone into the life afterwards then it becomes less of an allegory and it becomes more of like him acclimatizing i don't know yeah and it becomes more literal and probably less interesting just really wanted to know how he was going to interact with like the real world well, he's definitely somebody who has lived his entire life a lie. He's been an indentured slave. He's, they say he's the first corporate person, so he's like a copyrighted human. He's like he's sold to a corporation. The corporation owns him, right? They own his likeness. And then now, what are they going to do? I guess they still own his likeness. He's going to be going to malls the rest of his life, like signing autographs or something like that, because they still own him, right? They didn't say that they were like uh, sort of letting him go from their ownership. So. I don't know. There'll be a book about it, you know, my life on the Truman Show. Exactly. And hopefully, hopefully he gets some of the rights and some of the profits from that. I don't know. Um, I guess he's got his his fame to fall back on. But it is interesting also to think like, okay, what kind of a world would it be where it's like an alternate reality where they actually can own humans, a corporation can own humans? Like, what kind of a world is that? That's kind of an interesting thought as well. All right. So, uh, okay. So that's, that's in a nutshell is the plot of the Truman show. So now I'm going to try to do my best to give in a nutshell, the plot of I'm out of joint. And all of you here also can try to figure out, uh, if you think it's an unofficial ripoff or not. Um, so basically the Philip K. Dick book takes place in 1959 with a guy named Eggle gum, which is what an incredible name. He lives in this quiet American suburb, just like the Truman Show. But his job is uh, to play this newspaper contest called Where Will the Little Green Man Be Next? Which, okay. Uh, talk about Shaggy Dog's story. We'll get there in a second. 
but he keeps noticing weird things about his environment, like Marilyn Monroe doesn't exist. He has a memory of Marilyn Monroe, and he goes to his soft drink stand, but instead of instead of a soft drink stand there, a small slip of paper that reads soft drink stand. Um, and then uh, military pilots seem to know his name. He hears them on the radio. So finally, he's had enough of this. He's wondering what the heck is going on. So he decides to escape his small town, and he gets in the way all these sort of Cap-X-esque obstructions to try to stop him. But in, in the end, he finally discovers that the town is a constructed reality that is designed to protect him from the fact that now lives in a post-apocalyptic Wyoming, which, okay, you know, yeah, of course, this is a Philip K. Dick novel. There's going to be some wacky stuff. Um, so then he discovers that his memory is routinely wiped, uh, and he's been hired to crack codes that are these crossword puzzles, this where will the green man be next games. And so when he solves those games, he's actually figuring out, like, uh, when these separatist lunar colonists are going to attack Earth. And so he's right. the one who can figure out their coordinates. And in the end, um, he actually decides to immigrate to the moon and become of the colonists, which is kind of cool. So it kind of has uh, an anti-human, uh, Earth human element. And then he escapes to the colony, which was sort of rebelling against humans on Earth. And he becomes uh, sided with them. I guess he was put up with enough of the lies and the deceit. And he wanted to go start a new life on, on the moon. So there you go. How did I do? did great you did so much better than i would have trying to remember time out of joint right 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 so so there's obviously some similarities but there are some differences so i guess the question is do you think that this was inspired do you think truman show was inspired by the book time out of joint or do you think it's a bit of a coincidence by the way if anyone here has any thoughts uh and metatron or or uh, hero, your 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 name's too small to read, Mister over in the corner. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I recently watched the movie and revisited some of the like a little bit of our dickheads episode on Time Out of Joint, and then having you kind of the synopsis. I think it's more coincidental. I think it's. Mm. I think it's. I don't. I don't really think it's as inspired as some may think it is because. Dick's character Ragglegum. Ragglegum is kind of solving. It's it's almost a, a mystery novel for for Raggle. He's solving all these weird, seemingly mundane puzzles to learn this awful truth. Whereas Truman is dealing with very strange events that are kind of big and in loud scope to find more of a truth about himself. And I think this mm -hmm. happens a lot with Dick's protagonist to Time Out of Joint, where so they they come away feeling less relevant than they thought they were, as Truman is extremely relevant. Yeah, totally. That that's an interesting take. Oh wait, although, but what did you say that the in, in Regal Gum does? He's the center of keeping the colonists away from their attacks, right? So he's sort of the center of the military operation as well. Um, but he ultimately but he, he ultimately I think Lee he goes away and decides he he Doctor Manhattan's himself to the Moon Colony. <laughs> Right, 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 right. Yeah. So this is really yeah, I, interesting. So I've, yeah, I'm actually going to take the opposite side of this argument, believe it or not. So okay. there was, there was, uh, I, I, I took a note. I, it was, I think it was on like page 59 of the book. There's this line. And in this line, I was like, that's the moment that the writer was inspired to write the Truman Show. And they, they're basically, Raggle discovers that he's on a set with props and he's at the center of a stage. 
and this sort of um, if you step beyond that, you discover that it's nothing but cardboard walls. And I was like, oh my God, that's the moment right there. So it literally wrote in the book that he believes that he was on a set, it was designed for like a television show. It was almost like a throwaway line. If I was looking for a, a new screenplay to write and I was reading Philip K. Dick for some inspiration and I was reading this book and I came along that line, I'd be like, Eureka, it's just like a reality show. And I would build it off of that framework. Believe it or not, I actually think that this was inspired. Question for me is, should they have given uh, due credit uh, for coming up with um, the Truman Show or should they have just let it be a loose inspiration? I think legally speaking, there's enough difference here that he, Philip K. Dick's estate would not have a case to argue that they are due rights for this story. The only way that I think they would have rights to the story is if the screenwriter came out in an interview and said, I was inspired by this Philip K. Dick story full time out of joint, which is what happened to James Cameron when he wrote Terminator. So James Cameron came up with Terminator on his own volition, but in an interview said, oh, I kind of dashed together a bunch of Harlan Ellison short stories. And then Harlan Ellison sued James Cameron and won the lawsuit. Now, if you watch the Terminator, did. you'll see in the credits uh, inspired by characters of Harlan Ellison or something like that. So is, I think, though, that um, this is one of those cases that there's enough differences. I mean, it takes place in a different time. There's a different conspiracy happening. There's these lunar colonists. There's this, there's, you know, there's this military operation happening. All of that stuff makes me think that um, it, I think it probably was inspired, but I don't think that it needed to be dated or some of the rights needed to go back to the Philip K. Dick estate. I think it's different enough that the writer can take license and um, embellish. I, I, I don't even remember that line from the book. So I think if I had right. read it recently and then watched the movie, I'd be like, oh, now I get it. Now, now I think that connection is pretty is more solidified. I also do agree that it's, it, it's a loose inspiration because, right, he's not taking characters and moments and scenes from time out of joint. Right. I'm, I agree with you on that one. Right. This is the audience. Yeah. So, um, what's that? Um, in any case, um, the only thing, I, other thing I wanted to say before we moved on from the plot, which was the creative decision in my mind, um, that the writer and director made, were that to reveal to the audience the opening scene that Truman's life is a lie and that he's living on a uh, reality TV set. I think that's pretty interesting, and that's that's a big departure from the book Time Out of Joint where you're in the subjective uh, POV of the main character and the uh, plot is unraveling and the mystery is unraveling as we go, because this deliberately sets it up that we know from the very beginning. Uh, did, how, did you like that uh, idea or did you think there could have been a, um, more to just having a more successful story? I think, I think it's a great idea. I, I mean, if they had done it differently and kept... I like about it is it allows me as the the audience member to kind of take a look at how they're manipulating Truman's life, right? Which I'm not going to pay attention to. I'm not going to pay attention to if I just assume I'm watching this guy go through his. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I think that the reason that they needed to do that is a tonal reason, because I think that if you had set this up like it was a mystery, there would be suspense and it would be more of a thriller almost. But 
Truman Show, the movie, is a comedy. So in order for the comedy to take place, we need to know sort of situational comedy that's taking place, which is that Truman is a fish out of water in a land that he thinks he's fish in water. And so the comedy kind of comes from uh, the not understanding all that we understand. So I think comedy is set up slightly differently than suspense is. And so if you did, that's, that, that I think is important for tone. First of all, can I mention how incredible this cast is? We've got Jim Carrey, Paul Giamatti, Laura Linney, Ed Harris, Philip Baker Hall, and Philip Glass, the great musician, it actually makes a cameo as well. Um, pretty, pretty incredible cast. This is because Peter Weir was at the height of his powers. He'd already been nominated for Best Picture for Witness, Best Picture for Dead Poet Society, I believe. He's, he was on the top of his game. Um, so I guess we, we've already talked about Truman a little bit. Truman Burbank, uh, what a great name as well. Um, any other thoughts on Truman? I mean, he's living this horrifying life. Uh, everything's a lie. I think, I, I mean, I, I love the character, even though I do think it's Jim Carrey at times being Jim Carrey. Right. You know, which is not bad. I've grown up with Jim Carrey being, you know, who he is. That's fine. He's, he's good at, at what he does. But I, I think that he, I think Carrey is very important for the role of Truman because he is extremely likable while at the same time maybe being a bit positively naive. If you know if if you know what I mean by that, I think yep. that Carrie pulls that off really well, which is kind of in himself. What, what I want to point out is is just am I the only one that loves Ed Harris? <laughs> no, Ed Harris is incredible. I love that his name is Christoph in this story. He's like you know, be, having directed a, a few films myself um you you know you get onto set and you do kind of feel like you're the god of this entire domain and so the fact that he's like this complete megalomaniac complete egomaniac who is controlling the life of everything about truman burbank and is sort of being the puppet master um and he calls himself Kristoff. i mean he literally thinks he's god descending upon truman's world and uh, and it goes into all of that stuff in the end where he's a voice from the heavens coming down. He's a, you know, he's in a loudspeaker in the clouds who kind of his voice booms down on Truman and is like, you, are you seeking the truth? And like, you know, come out, you know, you know, stay. Actually, he gives him this final ultimatum, like stay where you are and I will make a better reality for you than you will have out here. I'll have the truth out here. The truth is painful. I'll make a great reality for you. I mean, he's, he's got to be the best character in this whole story. Absolutely. It's the ultimate representation of a God complex. Right. Love it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, he's, he's great. He plays it. Uh, he plays it perfectly. He's got such nuance in his performances. He's, he always, uh, he always plays it so well. All right. So the only other character uh, that I really think we got to talk about is the Laura Liddy character. Uh, the picture I have here that will be on, uh, if you guys are listening to the audio podcast, we're going to put this on YouTube at the simulation nation. And I also post these on Instagram at our uh, the Simulation Nation on Instagram. This picture with Laura Linney, uh, who plays his wife, is great because it shows this bird of prey with its eagles eagle wings uh, outstretched, and then she is taking the exact same pose. And really, I almost think that she's the most diabolical character here. Besides, stuff sort of having this god complex, 
she's really the one who's going down and doing the nitty gritty and emotionally manipulating him in the moment and kind of saying that she'll have his child, which should be this incredible, you know, uh, you know, almost spiritual act that she's just like prostituting herself for fame, essentially. Like, is, is, is there anyone who has a more dark character in this story than her? Darker? I don't think so. Even the friend seems like he's just there to collect a paycheck. Right. Well, although, yeah, the friend is brutal as well, because when, when Truett is having these moments of doubt and, moment, uh, and moments of sort of existential despair, he goes to his friend for solace, and his friend like is like, I would never lie to you, Truman. I would never tell you, I I'm your best friend. I've always been your best friend. And he's lying straight through his teeth. He's giving his Oscar performance. Oh, he's pretty dark, but I always keep thinking of like every night Truman goes home with his wife, goes to bed with her. They're married in this show. Like she's really, she's, you know, they even show their uh, wedding photo and she's crossing her fingers in the wedding photo uh, to sort of, you know, um, to sort of, you know, not take the lie to heart. But I mean, come on, she's, she's doing the most sinister diabolical things of all. All right, so uh, so let's talk about the point. I think that the theme is rather interesting. Uh, there's some overlap with the time out of joint book again. So um, I'll start by saying that the time out of joint um, title came from Hamlet. Uh, if there's any Shakespeare uh, experts out there, you may recognize it. It's the moment that Hamlet realizes that his father uh, was killed by his uncle. And uh, this is uh, Hamlet's father's ghost that tells him this. And what he says is, time is out of joint, oh, cursed spite, ever I was born to set it right. So that's where Philip K. Duck came up with the title, which is really great. And it shows the moment that a character's or a person's life is thrown upside down. Everything they thought they knew that was sacred is actually a lie. And it changes his whole worldview. Do you guys cover that on your, your podcast? episode was so long ago I and mean, i only listened to some of the, the of it so what did you think was the uh point of the book and then we'll talk about what do you think the point of the movie was man the what do you think the, the, the theme or the message of the book i think i think it's one of dick's most essential themes which is paranoia feeling lost and like you don't like you're you like so many of his characters have a skill that nobody else thinks is good until everybody realizes we really need this guy. But, but I, I think I think I think part of the for me, if I can remember back that far, part of it is disenfranchisement with the world around you. Yeah, disenfranchisement, um, that the society around you is lying. They're pulling the wool over your eyes so that they can manipulate you, do their bidding, and uh, not uh, uh, appropriately tell you the whole uh, scenario. Um, I think that that's you know, a major element, right? It was sort of set in 1950s paranoia. So you had the McCarthy era, you had the sort of um, blacklisting, you had uh, people sort of being hidden it, 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 under this perfect white picket fence world of 1950 suburbia and uh, really 
he was sort of saying that there's a lot more dire things happening. Actually, we're living in a post-apocalyptic Wyoming, and this is all a lie. And so he was, I think, also trying to get at the sort of um, society uh, being a little bit of um, a lie. And America, the American government kind of really the wool over our eyes and that the real reality was a little bit more darker dark and sinister. In the 1950s, um, kind of nuclear family is just propaganda. Exactly, exactly. Um, Lisa, you might have a comment here. Let's call on Lisa. What do you have to say, Lisa, about this? Yeah, so how do you guys feel about this? Like, do you guys feel that this is true? Like, do you guys feel like, you know, like we're just, you know, like, like, like none of this is real? Like, you know? Well, good question. We're talking uh, as we're flying through the simulation on a cyber falcon in virtual reality talking about if the real world on the outside is real or also a simulation, it keeps going and going and going. What do you think, Anthony? I've never asked you that before. Uh, do you, you love Philip K. Dick. You dedicate your entire podcast to Philip K. Dick, and he dedicated himself to alternate realities, uh, showing us that uh, what we think is real is actually illusion. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that while it would be kind of interesting to learn that we are just a simulation. I don't know if I necessarily buy into it, but what I do believe is that everyone's individual reality isn't real. It, it only extends as far as themselves. Oh, like my reality and how I perceive the world is going to be different than your reality, right, Graham? And how you perceive the world. So everybody's realities are technically all not the same. That's my right. actual opinion. Okay. I, there, you know, there is obviously, there is the Elon Musk idea where he broke it down and he was like, well, if you think about technology today, then you imagine how advanced this, uh, this simulation will be in not only 10 years, but not, not only 100 years, not only 1,000 years, but imagine 50,000 years from now, how incredibly advanced simulations will be. Who's to say that we are not living in that 50,000-year advanced simulation now, and we just don't know it because we've got memory blockers or whatever? Maybe we're in the, the arcade of the future, and we'll wake up after we played, and we lived a whole lifetime in here to be like, wow, man, that was crazy. I'm going to go back in, and I'm going to like, you know, tweak my uh, settings a little bit. This time, I'm going to be like super rich, but I'm going to be an asshole, and I'm going to be like... You know, you know, whatever. I'm going to have 10 kids and let's see how that life goes. And then you go in and you play that whole life and then you come out. I mean, it's who knows, right? Uh, I, I think it's fun, always fun to think about. Um, are we in the base reality or are we in simulated reality? Elon Musk says that there's like a 50, 50 uh, or 1 billion to 1 odds that we're in the base reality. Because if you think about it, there's one base reality and then that one base reality creates a billion stations in order to... Maybe they're doing it to play out, okay, how do we stop nuclear disaster? Let's create a billion simulations and see how we can save ourselves from a nuclear disaster. And so then it's like, well, that means that there's 999,999,999 simulations for one real, real reality. So then he sort of says that the odds are that we actually are living in a simulation. I don't know. It's always fun to think about. Thanks for the question, buddy. We could be here all night. 
Matter of fact, this is episode 100, and we still haven't solved this uh, this grand conundrum. Um, I would but hope let's that see what if D I can has plan. To... What's that? I could hope. I hope that if I could plan my simulation like that, I would never choose to go to work every day. Oh, maybe maybe your next next time through, you'll be like, I'm going to set a parameter where I could just be free all the time and not have to work. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Just maybe you didn't set the right parameters this time. Maybe you didn't have uh, control of it at all. Who knows? Um, hit the wrong right. button. Brand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is D out here? D, are you here? Who's D? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? You're good. I, was your name Lisa a moment ago and now it's D? It was not. <laughs> okay. There was another person here named Lisa. Um, yeah. So, what are your thoughts, D? On that. <laughs> um, so I came a bit late. I came in when you guys were talking about uh, Laura Linney's character, what she called Meryl. Yes. And about how um, basically she is kind of the worst guy in this way. But I wanted to try to give like a little bit of background introspective or uh, perspective that uh, that I have on her. I kind of have been thinking about it because I watched this movie like last week by happenstance. And she kind of reminds me of a little bit more of she had more more foresight knowledge, knowing that she was an actress the whole time. But she was in him with him. From, from grade or middle school days, if I remember correctly. Um, and she was always cast to be this. She kind of reminds me um, to to bring up the the not popular anymore in Game of Thrones. She kind of reminds me of a Sansa Stark when she wanted to marry um, Geoff or Joffrey. What, Joffrey. Joffrey. Um, right. She, she knew what she was signing up for, but not really. She thought that's what she wanted. I could see how she knocked out the other girl from becoming an actual love interest because she was slotted for that spot. That was her role, right? So she can, you can have a teenage mind of like, I want to star in the show. I want to do this and not realize what you're signing yourself up for, for any, in any way, shape or form in the grand scheme mm. of actually marrying, having sex with somebody on an average basis, blah, 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 blah. And then also the contempt that can be bred from not realizing the role that you yourself signed up for when you weren't old enough to make such a choice. So I wanted to add some humanity to the side of her, not, not to say she's any more innocent because that would be false, but um, just give like the perspective of, Hey, you can sign up for something as a kid. That's like, I'm going to start in this lifelong show and be like the major wife in it. And then be like, Oh, I have to give up my whole real life and how it could breed contempt with her and actually explain why she's a little bit meaner and more hateful to him than she would at, at a glance have a right to be. And she certainly does not have that right, but I, it's understandable how that could come about and how, you know, the crossing her fingers is like, this isn't the real me. Like, I still want to own myself in this real world. You know what I mean? And how that can come across as, as very hateful. It, it is in a way to him. It's, it's very disrespectful, but also he's not in on it. Um, and it's a way of trying to keep her identity in this uh, fucked up thing that she signed up for before she really had a right to knowingly do it. Interesting. I love it. So you're basically saying that she has like self-loathing, uh, but it's not uh, necessarily diabolical in a sense. But it, can, it can manifest. It can manifest to be just as diabolical even if unintentionally so the end result can be just as as harmful 
But um, understanding like, hey, when you signed up to be the wife of this lifelong TV reality show, you were in middle school and you can't have known the consequences for that. And even not not just in defense, but what kind of contempt would that breed in somebody as they became an adult over time, having to come to terms with their own choices that they made knowingly? uh, I I don't want to say selfish gain. But fame can be selfish with that, that, that it's a very much be careful what you wish for story with her. (laughs) And I just wanted to bring that, that perspective to it. Thank you. Oh, Ah, no, that's very insightful. Thank you, Dee. That was great. Makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Um, Cool. So, okay. So we talked a little bit about uh, Time Out of Joy at the Point. So what about uh, Truman Show? Do you think it's any different than the book? Do you think there's a different message um, that they give here? I think that as a whole, the message of the Truman Show is kind of about finding yourself your own way. If you really look at it as, as Truman's life is manipulated from birth to when he's 30, basically just doing what he's told he's supposed to do. And I think that a lot of us fall into that trap until we kind of take a step back and go, well, wait a minute, maybe I just push forward in this other thing and it might not be what everybody's telling me it's going to be. I I think not a joint is much more, like I said before, strange paranoia, mass propaganda, mass like war propaganda, America isn't the beautiful thing it claims it is. And, and in a way, I think Time Out of Joint is less personal than The Truman Show to me. Mm-hmm. That would be right. my, my take on that. Yeah. yeah, for me, I think that the point that they make is, is really a line that Christoph gives in the end. And he, he basically hits the nail on the head. He says, accept the reality of the world with which we are presented. I think that's pretty, pretty true, right? Like, that's why I think this sort of this story is able to transcend um, a sort of shaggy dog story about a, a twist and uh, a character who reveals, oh, it was all a dream. It, it, it transcends that and becomes an allegory because I think it's sort of about the process of self-discovery and about the process of questioning your environment questioning those things that you were brought up thinking were true and finding your own path. And I think that that's a really valuable story. And I think it's very well articulated here. Um, so, so I love it. I love it for that. Um, the other angle that I think is kind of interesting that if the movie was indeed inspired by the book, that they updated it in quite a nice way, which is that um, it's sort of like, as much as uh, about the nature of reality as it is a satire of media's control of our life. So it kind of, you know, this was done in the nineties and we didn't even have Twitter and Instagram and smartphones. And yet they were already saying, well, reality TV exists. We've got big brother. I don't know if they had Jersey shore yet. I doubt it, but they started to have MTV had started to move away from um, music and had started to go into virtual, to uh, reality TV already. So they, they just extrapolated on that idea into the future where media would kind of take over our lives. And my God, look where we are now, 2022. It literally has taken over our lives. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a part of our everyday uh, experience. Um, so I think that that was a, a really nice way to update Bill K. Dick's story and his paranoia about 1950s suburbia. What a way to run with that, that, that singular moment in the book. 
yeah, to, to be inspired exactly. by that. So, so this has come up before on this podcast where, I, you know, there's so many, we always are covering movies that have to do with alternate realities and uh, reality as illusion. And there were so many of them in the 90s. There was The Matrix. There was Show, There was Existence. There was Dark City. All of these movies where the character needs to break free from the lies in which they're living and sort of find a, a, a higher truth. Why do you think that that was the case in the 90s? What was it in the air in the 90s that we're, we were telling this story over and over and over again? I, I don't know if I'm the right one to answer that question. That's a great question, Graham. I, I would like to hear the answer to that as well. The 90s, the 90s and I would say the late 80s to the like mid late 90s was just that was the time of, of like, you know, early VR, cyberpunk you know, William Gibson and all that stuff. And I think it really just hit a chord with people. And there's, it was, it was a time like it hit a chord with everybody. And I don't know if anyone is familiar with the sci-fi horror author, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Thomas, but he's, he's written a lot about, you know, interpersonal relationships with AI and alien beings and, and, and certain kind of strange otherworldly simulations that that terrain is, is good for new stories and i think it just that was the time for it it was the time for bright red neon lights and leather jackets right yeah i i have i have a theory about it i i may have said it before yes but it, it's sort of i think there's a there's two reasons i think you're touching on one of them one is that um Technology was advancing the internet was being born and suddenly people started to think well if the internet uh, is like this in its rudimentary stage. What's it going to be, you know, a hundred years from now? So all these ideas of virtual reality started to be born, and that was the idea of alternate realities, and and that. So I think that technology and society certainly had a, a part to play. The other thing I, I think is that it was the only period, in the last, I don't know, fifty hundred years where America wasn't at war with anyone. Right? The Cold War ended, nineteen eighty nine. The wall came down. Um, September 11th didn't happen until 2001. We had exactly 10 year period uh, where there was nothing to worry about. There was no wars to fight. And so we sort of turned on our inwards on ourselves and we're allowed to kind of climb up Maslow's hierarchy, the Maslow's hierarchy where it's like at the bottom, you just need to have security that you're not going to die. Then it's like you need to eat healthily, that you need to have psychological health and emotional health. And then you can self-actualize. I feel like as a society, we were kind of at a stage where it's like, well, we have no outer enemy to worry about. Let's like make our lives better. Let's self-actualize and let's like, let's, let's question everything that we know about society and make it even better. I don't know if I'm crazy or not. I don't know if B or uh, if anyone else has any thoughts on that, but I do feel like the nineties was really right for that. And then like all of these books and movies came out and then 2001 hit, September 11th hit, all of that was wiped off the table, and we were back into like, who is this Osama bin Laden guy? What are who are these people trying to kill us? You know, what what is this terrorist threat that's new and different? And we have to figure it out and we have to question that. And so our our, our direction more became like, well, I don't want to get blown up. And so we need to like direct our attention down Maslow's hierarchy again to more survival. I don't know. I am I am I'm in awe of that theory. Okay. All right, cool. Well, um, 
This is the time of the show that we come to uh, the... Wow. 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 Score. Wow time. Homer. If you give 10 wows, you think this is the greatest movie ever. If you give zero wows, this was uh, a total waste of your time. What wow score do you give The Truman Show? Uh, I'm going to give it like eight and a half wows out of 10. I think this is a great movie. And I think this conversation has really kind of swayed me to think of it more in a, a darker tone than, than I initially felt it was. Because the movie on its own is, is kind of light, right? Like in cinematography, it's not a arc movie. It's not like Christopher Nolan's The Truman Show. But but I think that it's a beautiful allegory about making your own way in the world. And I, I do, like I, like I said, I wanted more at the end to kind of see how he interacts with the, like our society. But I think that the ending where he punches through the wall and he turns around and he reiterates his, his uh, basically what is you know, his, his line at the beginning is, is beautiful. <coughs> okay, well, I... Yeah, so eight and a half. I, uh, I'm i going to give it, uh, well, I think that, like I said, I think this is a movie that stands the test of time. I think that it goes deeper than you necessarily think on the surface. I think the reason that they shot it this way is because they wanted to emulate the style of a sitcom, right? They wanted to have that high-key lighting, uh, have that sort of uh, flat atmosphere that we associate with those kind of shows at that period. So that kind of makes sense. Uh, but I do think that there's a depth here. And I do think that it's a movie that I go back to uh, time again. And I'm just like, it's such a nice uh, a, a parable uh, about, um, you know, uh, self-exploration, self-discovery. Uh, and I just think that Peter Weir, the director, has such a, a finesse, such a nice touch with performances, um, the dialogue, the plot, the way that it's set up to have dramatic irony, where we know, uh, along with Kristoff, that Truman is living a lie before he does. So we get to see that play out. Um, so for all those reasons, I give it a nine. All right, give it a nine. We're pretty close, though. All right, so anyone else have any thoughts? Uh, D, you just watched it. What would you give it out of 10? Curious. And uh, I don't know if a uh, Metatron, if you wanted to say something, use the raise hand option and we'll get to you so then we can hear your voice on the podcast. Maybe Dia stepped away. Um, oh, there we go. Someone's, someone's put their raise. Oh, D, D, got, D beat you to it. Uh, you don't have the, okay. No, no, nothing Metatron. Okay, D, what do you think? You give it out of 10. No worries. I was muted. I, I, I would say it is deserving of a nine. It's a very notable movie. It, it set a tone for a lot of movies to come. It stands out. It reached a wider audience than the average movie of this caliber. So I would say a nine is a, is a pretty solid give. I might want to say 8.5, but I would be trying to find something and trying to be extra picky if I gave it that. Okay. Cool. Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting because at that time, of course, Jim Carrey was doing all of these insanely over-the-top you know, pet detective type movies. And that's what sort of allowed them to get the budget to make this movie. Uh, but then it added depth uh, to Jim Carrey's performances. He did Man on the Moon, uh, you know, and, and he's, he got into a little bit more of an introspective part of his career. Um, and so this was sort of, I think, the first one that allowed him to play on his over-the-top persona, which showed that there's more depth there than actually uh, most people see. I think it was a really interesting um, turn for Jim Carrey's career as well. 
Uh, eight minute try. Maybe I'll take you off mute and see. Uh, but it's you, you can't see the race. I think you're trying to do the race and option, or, or are you not? You are trying. If I take it off of mute, then it's not going to be the audio is not going to be as good for the podcast. But I'll we'll do it. We'll do it. All right. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it doesn't show uh, the raised hand doesn't show on my end. Oh, it's got, is it not beside on your right hand side on the uh, uh, little circle? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I know where it usually is, but no, it's, it's oh. not showing up. Okay, all right. Well, what are your uh, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely give it an eight or a nine. It's it's uh, it's definitely a good movie. Uh, one that I would love to see you guys review next time. Maybe this is a future, you know, podcast or one hundred and one. Um, the thirteenth floor. There well, of course, we've aspects. we've done the thirteenth floor. Oh, I I missed it then because that there are certain aspects of the thirteenth floor that I think just nailed it to the T. As far as you know, simulation nation is you know concerned, uh, and there's uh, there's something that you may have missed on uh, Cade Dick when he, in the 1970s when he actually you know was in front of the crowd actually performing a uh, sort of one on one with his with his audience. He made a statement. He said, uh, "Many people have claimed to be reincarnated." But his claim was that incarnated on multiple planets, and <laughs> all of his books are actually recalling or a sort of, uh, I guess, regression experiences of all of the different lives that he's lived on other planets within, you know, the universe. And if you think of it from, you know, a galaxy perspective. There might be some truth to that. There might be, you know, every galaxy could be a different, you know, reality that we can experience. You know, we, you know, you have religion that says that you die and you go to heaven. Well, then every galaxy could be one aspect of that simulation or that, you know, reality that we experience. Absolutely. Uh, no, I love it. That's true. Uh, have you come across that quote, Palmer? Uh, you're the you're the Philip K. Dick expert. It sounds familiar, but it is I, I, it's something that I haven't deep dived into. This is I'm learning more about it now. Yeah, if you go if you go uh, research, I think it's his France. Uh, I think it's his talk that he did in in, in France uh, that was where he he made that as his you know platform claim is that it, I think it was in that interview and. It, 1970s, I know for sure, but yeah, you can look it up. It's you can see him actually making the claim directly in his little presentation. Yeah, crazy. So I'll definitely check it out. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Metatron. I love the name too. Very cool. Um, cool. Uh, well, um, well, Palmer, uh, it was great having you back on this stage. Um, how can people get in touch with you out in the meat space world? Um, I mean, I'm on Facebook, but I'm not super active on it. You can pretty much anybody that's interested can follow the Dickheads podcast on Spotify. We're still not on Apple because iTunes doesn't want anything to do with us. Then you can follow the Dickheads Facebook page. And as far as me directly, I'm basically only active on one platform, which is Instagram, as Graham knows. Um, and that is Anthony underscore Trevino 976. 
and I, I don't know what what I don't know how to sell my social media. But if you like music and you like weird stuff, it's my Instagram. Books. <laughs> you like music and you like weird stuff. Well, everyone here loves music and weird stuff. That's why we're here. So you're a, you're a squid. Uh, cool. Yeah. Well. Um, well. Uh, thank you so much for for coming, and thank you all for teleporting in to the worldcast of Simulation Nation. Here with us in virtual reality, like these fine avatars listening to the Podify, uh, podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or watching in Glorious Technicolor on YouTube. And remember to subscribe to our Instagram at The Simulation Nation, Twitter at SimNationVR, and our Discord server, and join us this Thursday for Sound and the Metaverse with sound designer Cornelius. Till then, stay plugged, my friends.